Welcome to Reptile Living Room, and this is your host, James Tintle, along with uh, other hosts there, John Taylor. How you doing tonight, John? How do you, sir? Pretty good over here. Awesome. How, how's life up there in uh, Canada? <laughs> how's life in Canada? Well, it's uh, it's been a, been in a bit of an adventure this uh, <laughs> past couple of weeks, you know, with the move and all that good stuff, but uh, things are good, things are good. Well, a little yeah. jealous about you wandering around in the uh, mangroves yesterday, but we won't talk about that. Oh, taking pictures of the little fiddler crabs. Yeah, it was a good time. Nice. So, so what do we got for this week's show, man? Do we have any uh, any new sponsors for the show sign up? I think we got one, didn't we? <laughs> do we have sponsors? My goodness. Um, of course, we have Happy Gecko Sticking Situation with Rachel Winton, uh, Natalie Beto, Wildlife Illustrator as well as uh, North American Reptile Breeders Conference with Brian Potter. And our newest sponsor, of course, would be none other than Clay, uh, Clay Gann, Sam, and Debbie. I don't recall her last name. I want to say it's Price uh, from Reptiles Express as a sponsor of this show tonight. Uh, definitely check out all, all of the above. Uh, they're all going to be in the show notes if you guys need website addresses or anything like that. Uh, Chad's going to go ahead and provide those in the show notes after the show is up and recorded. Uh, you guys can check out all the sponsors, and please do. Uh, click on the sponsors. Make sure to go to their Facebook pages like Jimmy had outlined um, earlier in the week in Facebook about liking the page, liking their page is great. That's fantastic. We love it when you like our sponsors page as well as ours. You have to share it in order to get the word out there about our show and about everybody else's because of the Facebook algorithms that Facebook is currently have uh, put into place. So don't just like the pages, share them out there as well. And uh, I believe you had somebody from YouTube, right, Jimmy? Yeah, I got a guy, Levi Hopper 9 been watching us since uh, show number one. So awesome. uh, shout out to Levi Hopper 9 on YouTube. Um, go check out his uh, channel. It's actually pretty cool. He's got some little uh, clip videos uh of reptiles, um, different ones. It was pretty neat, but uh, <clears throat> I wanted to touch base on um, also on the Facebook liking business pages, and this goes for a lot of people on our panel and also anybody else out there in Facebook. Um, when you like a business page, there is now a drop-down menu, and you have to click the get notifications and make sure that is checked. Then the pages that you liked Anytime they make a post, it'll actually come up in your timeline. So I just want to do that too. Kind of helps out so you can follow the businesses that you actually want to follow. Um, other than that, John, I think I'm pretty good. I want to do some shout-outs to some Facebook groups that allowed us to share the event um, in their in their groups. Um, Redfoot and Yellowfoot Tortoise Facebook group. Turtle Identification Facebook group, and Tortoise Keepers. I have a few more, probably about six or seven other ones. I'll post them up on Reptile Living Room. Everybody can check them out. Um, there's a lot of people in some of them. Some of them have like 2,000 members, so they're pretty good groups. I kind of got a chance to scroll around them and, and look at some of the great posts over there. So um, thanks a lot to everybody letting us post it in their Facebook groups. Very much. We really appreciate that, guys. We always appreciate any fan support you guys can give us as far as watching the show or sharing the shows that are out there. Um, and tonight's panel is, I think, let's see, one, two, three, four, 
about five people. So I think this is our largest panel to date, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Jimmy. Absolutely. Um, awesome. I'm glad everybody was able to come on. I think the care packages we sent, everybody kind of sealed the deal. That must have been it. <laughs> you up that cheesecake, right, Chad? Yeah, I think he found it and sent it to everybody. <laughs> but, yeah. All right, so so let's get down to business. Um, yeah. Our show tonight is about turtles and tortoises, All, everything about turtles and tortoises, and we have a great panel of guys up here. Um, not only do we kind of want to go over the, the basics of keeping turtles and tortoises, but we really want to get involved into the preservation and conservation of them. And, and, and you know, they kind of get set behind the, the large constrictors in, in this arena, especially on social media and a lot of the outlets. They kind of get pushed to the back end. We don't see as many posts about the conservation and preservation as, of turtles and tortoises as we do um, with the constrictor rules and snake rules. Um, so... First off, let me introduce our, our first guest here, Daniel Parker, a sun, sunshine serpents, and I'm tongue-tied. So everybody gets tongue-tied on that. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good uh, good business play there. Everybody will start to remember it. Sunshine serpents. Sunshine serpents. <laughs> there you go, man. Uh, how you doing tonight, Daniel? Doing well. Good to Great. see you. Great. Hey, you are working on a, a couple pretty cool projects coming up. Um, can you give us a little information on that? Are you referring to the uh, the University of Central Florida project? I am. Well, what we've been doing for the last few years, uh, we've been studying the impacts of State Road 40 on wildlife. And uh, one component of this project that I've been working on is uh, radio telemetry with box turtles. And uh, as far as I know, it's the only project uh, like it that's been done with Florida box turtles, and we've uh, learned some really interesting things. Great. Um, are you going to have a paper written on it, or is it just a, a um, study going to be done? Nope. Oh, we lost his mic. We lost Daniel, your mic there, Daniel. Can you hear him, John? Because I can't no, hear him. All right. Yep, that's what it's looking like. Chad, you want to take care of that for me? Let's go ahead and um, skip out. And uh, John, you want to introduce a couple of other guests? Yes. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, first of all, we have Michael... Uh, and I hope to God I don't wreck your name, Michael. Uh, Thothi Baswami. Did I get it right? Yeah, there you go. You got it. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. And, Michael, uh, you and I met uh, via Herp House Magazine, which is another one of our show sponsors. And uh, you've been into turtles, tortoises, and pretty much everything Kelonian for, gosh, how long now? For about 14 years now. Right, and now um, you are also working with the Turtle and Tortoise Preservation Group, uh, which I think all of our panel is part of, if I'm not mistaken. And what yeah, is your they were role? nice enough to let me in. <laughs> <laughs> so, talk to us about a little bit about the Turtle and uh, Tortoise Preservation Group. What's their kind of background? What do they do? 
Well, um, I think Russ's, Russ Drew, uh, you know, being board members can tell you much better than that. But I think, you know, they've had it going on. The group has been around for a long time. I think the first time I talked to Russ briefly was around 2004 or something. And since 2009, they've been very active. We have an annual conference. And it is the only group that is focused purely on captive, you know, um, care of turtles and tortoises. Um, they're always happy to help if you have a question, be it medical or breeding um, or just basic care. And I love the guys. I mean, very easy to approach them. You can talk to them about anything, and I love that about the group. Um, anybody who's interested and can make it um, should attend the conference, the TDPG conference. It just opens you up to so many keepers who have so many years of experience. And the ideas you, you can pick up from these guys just being there for a couple of days, it's just invaluable. It's It's been very helpful to me. Awesome. Very good. And uh, our next guest would be um, Russ Gurley. Uh, Russ, how are you doing tonight, sir? Good. Thanks. Good <laughs> now, Russ, yeah. you, um, you're a board member of uh, the Turtle and Tortoise Preservation Group, and you also are a publisher, uh, or herpeticulture uh, publisher. And is there anything you haven't done yet, Russ, uh, since you've been involved in herpeticulture? That, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. Yeah. No, I, I have been around for a long time. So uh, I started out in the early days with snakes and lizards and, and kind of gravitated towards turtles and tortoises about 15 years ago. And uh, I still keep a lot of lizards and, and a few snakes, but that's kind of, I guess, what I'm known for is, is turtles and tortoises and books and articles about them and their care. So Awesome. But yeah, I have, I have done a lot. Yeah. And you are speaking at IHS this year, is that correct? Uh, actually, I'm not. I, I actually laid out the program, and I gave a talk there uh, two years ago in Dallas, and so I'm kind of giving it a rest. They oh, they, okay. they advertised that I was going to speak, but I'm actually uh, the guy who coordinates the speakers. I, I uh, take all the speakers and the titles of their presentations and, and put them together uh, in the program. So it, it got twisted a little bit in the advertising. I was actually speaking, but I actually just coordinate all the speakers for the show. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, James, I'm going to turn it over to you for uh, um, Drew uh, and uh, James's introduction. Thanks, Sean. Thanks. Thank all yeah. right. We're going to introduce James Badman. He's also at ttpg.org. James, how are you doing tonight? All right, James, you actually work with Arizona State University, is that correct? Yes. Can you tell us can you tell us a little bit about your job at the university? Sure. Um, I've, I've actually worked for Arizona State University for 17 years. I'm, I'm their associate director of uh, animal care um, for facilities and operations. So I, I oversee basically all the, the uh, facilities uh, that ASU has to house um, uh, and the accounting, the budget, uh, anything really that has to do with animals at ASU, I have oversight of. So. Great. Sorry, guys, we were having an issue with some uh, audio going on. Um, maybe it's the large panel that we have here tonight. 
But uh, thanks, a, uh, thanks a lot for coming on, James. Uh, do you currently work with any species of turtles or tortoises? Uh, yeah, I, um, I keep a, a fairly large collection of um, tortoises focusing probably uh, primarily on uh, testudo. Um, I keep most of the large uh, species of tortoises uh, and uh, a lot of pixis. Um, they've been kind of a passion of mine for, for quite a while. Great, great. And, and talk about pixis, and we'll get into this uh, later on in the show um, after our discussion last night. Um, Pixis is coming up for um, submission for ESA. Is that correct? Yeah, that that seems to be the the new target species uh, for the, uh, from the animal rights groups, and uh, I, I guess they call themselves like wildlife guardians and stuff. Um, uh, for uh, species to be listed on the ESA, um, for conservation, as they would put it, um, I think it's really. Um, uh, a bad choice, um, but it's it's open to public comment now with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Great. Well, we'll get into that later on in the show when we cover the preservation and conservation. And let me go ahead and introduce our last uh, guest tonight, uh, Drew Reinhardt. Drew, you're also part of ttpg.org. Um, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, thanks. And yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. Staying alive here in uh, hot, sunny, humid Florida. So, um, yeah, that's real rough. <laughs> hey, at least I'm not floating on icebergs like you are, John. We probably got your beat on that hot and sunny part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, you probably do. Um, so, Drew, um, how'd you get involved with t uh, ttpg.org? Um. Russ is pretty persuasive. <laughs> is it is it because you were actually keeping turtles and tortoises and, and kind of thought that their mission statement was actually something you wanted to follow, or? Yeah, we were around in the beginning of TTPG, and it was just a basically a group of friends, and we needed a gang name, so we put it all together and made it a real group. And boom, that's how we have it now, right? That's it. Well, great. I'm glad you guys got it all together. You're a great group of guys, and, and you know, hopefully the rest of herpeticulture and herpetology can follow, you know, some of the stuff that you guys have been doing. Um, like the website, um, went to the Facebook page. I have the link, guys, on Reptile Living Room. Go like their page, um, Turtle and Tortoise Preservation Group. They're on Facebook. So... Um, Drew, can you tell me how did you? When did you first get involved with reptiles? At what age? Um, as far back as I can remember, we've always had stuff. My parents encouraged us to keep reptiles versus any animals with fur. We weren't a dog and cat house, so we had snakes and lizards. Well, that's a little bit different than uh, a lot of people growing up, and I'm sure uh, a lot of us wish we had that kind of household. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, well, let, let me jump back to um, Daniel Parker here and see if he's got his mic. Um, Daniel. Uh, hello, we, hello. All right, here we go. We can actually hear you again. Um, sorry yeah. about that. So, so let's get back to your work on um, State Road 40. So you were doing telemetry of box turtles. Um, yeah, sure. 
Is it actually going to be a paper? Are you going to release a paper based on your findings, or is the school going to do it? Well, the uh, the D Florida DOT, the Department of Transportation, funded the project. So um, right now they are preparing, uh, or the uh, my bosses at the university are preparing a report for the DOT. And uh, once that's released to them, it'll be public record, and we hope to eventually publish a paper on it also. Um, but uh, the DOT paid for the work, so they get the data first. Great. So are you tied tied to releasing any information that, uh, of your findings until that information is actually released to DOT? Well, I mean, I can talk in general. Like, I, I don't have the exact data in front of me anyway, but, I mean, we've learned some really interesting things. We've seen that the box turtles will become actually semi-aquatic and move down into the river floodplains during the uh, springtime and then when the summer rains come uh, anybody that's familiar with the uh, Florida climate knows that uh, in the summertime it rains almost every day and those swamps fill up so the turtles actually become aquatic for a time and uh, then we find in the late summer and into the fall they move back into the uplands we don't know exactly why they do this yet um, but we uh, we have observed this movement in quite a few of our box turtles. Now, some of them are uh, have pretty small home ranges, probably about half, and then uh, the other half of them are real movers. So there seems to be kind of different cultures within the uh, the box turtle community out there. But I would love to see if other box turtle species uh, or subspecies and species are doing the same thing in the wild. Uh, that our Florida box turtles are, but we've definitely some, observed some rather large home ranges. Well, that's really cool. Um, I know mm -hmm. after talking to you at, at a show once or twice, you actually had a female that you were actually following, and you actually named her, didn't you? Yeah, we actually have names for all of the box turtles. They get I, ID numbers, um, kind of the uh, dry scientific thing, but we started giving them uh, names also. It just helps you remember them better and uh, gives them a little bit of a personal touch. So the, the first box turtle that we caught, uh, I named her Nellie uh, after my grandma, who was actually named Linnell. And uh, Nellie was a very interesting turtle to watch. We had her for about two years, and we saw her move down into the lowlands, uh, probably movements of over 600 meters or so. Uh, and then back into the uh, more upland habitat, I can't say really dry habitat, but really big movements. And uh, this was a female. We haven't seen any correlation between uh, uh, bigger movements for, for females versus males. We've had both males and females that have moved long distances for us. Great. Sounds like a, it sounds like a great study. John, you got any questions for, for Daniel? Yeah, actually I wanted to chime in here real quick, Daniel. Uh, is there any evidence that you can speak to as far as what may be causing uh, the movements within the turtle population as far as moving up to the plains and down to the valleys it's well it's it's tough to say like I say we don't we don't know exactly why I mean we've definitely found uh, turtles mating we found turtles laying eggs we found them eating but uh, they've been such small sample sizes of all those events that I couldn't correlate it uh, between any specific uh, 
I mean, just speculating, it could be availability of a food source. It could be that they go down into to prepare for the summer rains because it gets hot in the summer, so they'd rather be in the water than out uh, in the heat, in the Florida heat. Um, maybe they come back up into the uplands when it's time to lay their eggs. Um, and like I said, we have other box turtles that don't move very much at all. Um, so it's, it's tough to say what makes a turtle do what it does. Uh, we know from some of the work that I did uh, previously with uh, Ray Ashton uh, that species like gopher tortoise and I would assume box turtles also are actually communicating with low frequency sounds and I've definitely found box turtles uh, with other box turtles uh, on numerous occasions on our projects. So there seems to be some kind of social structure. There's definitely communication happening so it's just this complex world and we're just scratching the surface at this point. Okay, because I did catch when you were talking about it earlier, you used a term uh, that my wife and I um, are very fond of when uh, speaking of animals. You actually used the word culture, and that was one that uh, she and I had some, shall we say, discussions over, um, well, I... whether an animal has culture or not, and then you brought up the infrasonic sound and whatnot. So now... I'm like, wow, okay, now they're actually communicating with each other? Uh, Ab absolutely. Second one on that one. <laughs> um, yeah, we know that, that, that a lot of these animals uh, are communicating with low-frequency sounds. Um, they did a study in Australia, I believe, where they were trying to uh, record the sounds of freshwater turtles, and they stuck a microphone under the water, and it was just a cacophony of noise. I mean, everything's talking, the shrimp, the fish, the, uh, the turtles. So just about the only way you can record an aquatic turtle is by putting it in a swimming pool by itself, which you're not really getting any kind of natural uh, communication there. But right. uh, it's such a complex world. And I know I've even seen different species of turtles interacting. I've seen Florida red-bellied turtles uh, courting peninsula cooters here in Florida in the wild. Those are different species, closely related, but I mean what are they saying to each other? So I know I'm kind of getting uh, anthropomorphic here relating uh, human behavior to animals, but it's just sometimes the best way to describe it uh, so we're able to relate to it. No, and I, I appreciate that very definitely, and I personally don't see it as being anthropomorphic at all. I, like yourself, would say that you know that's just an easier way for people to identify with it. And our executive producer had a good question here. Are they are you guys finding all ages or is it just adults? More adults uh, than anything else. I think we had one sub-adult that we found in the whole course of the project and I believe we had one or two hatchlings uh, hit on the road on our project and we caught one in a drift fence trap. Um, so definitely our adults, uh, I think we marked close to 30 box turtles on the project and uh, most of those were adults. So um, that's one thing with box turtles is that you always seem to find more adults than, than juveniles and we don't know a lot about what the juveniles do, what habitats they use, really anything about their natural history uh, because observations are pretty rare. <laughs> Very definitely. Very definitely. <laughs> now, as far as um, in general, why do you think it is that 
are, or are we seeing an increase in popularity as far as uh, turtles and tortoises these days? Uh, are you talking about as pets or just in yeah, our... I'm sorry, as, as pets, as uh, um, herpeticulturists and, you know, keeping as pets or private keepers, if you'd like. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, turtles have been popular for a long time. Um, you know, a lot of people talked 30, 40 years ago about buying them for 10 and 25 cents at, uh, you know, various stores. So people have kept turtles... For, for many years now, maybe ahead of what the uh, general herpeticultural hobby is, but it's definitely going worldwide. We're seeing a huge increase in interest in turtles and tortoises in uh, Asia, and not just eating turtles like we hear about a lot, and uh, people interested in turtle conservation definitely uh, will tell you about that, but there are a lot of people that are keeping turtles uh, as pets in Asia, uh, and Hong Kong, China, Korea, Japan. I'm in touch with people all the time that are dealing with these as pets. So the the uh, the pet industry in turtles has really taken off in in Asia. Wow. And actually, I do want to come back to you in regards to and actually the whole panel in regards to uh, turtle consumption by humans. I don't know if there's a technical term for that or not, but uh, talking about the cultures that do. Um, eat turtles and stuff like that, but uh, we want to jump to the rest of the panel and see what their thoughts are as far as the uh, popularity and captivity. If you want to uh, jump in here, James. Uh, actually, actually, yeah, let's have Michael um, answer that. Um, considering he's more the, you know, he, he's a pretty well-known hobbyist, I mean, everything I've heard about Michael has always been good. So, Michael, can, can yeah. you touch on that for us and uh, let us know, have you seen a rise in um, turtle and tortoise Oh, absolutely. I mean, from the time I started itself, um, I mean, like I told you, I started, I got interested in turtles even when I was back in India where we didn't keep turtles as pets. So there's something about them. Um, there's definitely a draw. And I, I mean, I remember an article from, written by Dave that say that mentioned that in the 70s, if you collected enough serial, you know, UPC codes and mailed it to the um, to the brand, they would send you, ship you turtles. So they've been around for a long time. I've talked to people whose parents would pick them from the backyard, put it in with the babies, or you know, when they were toddlers in the crib for them to play with. So I mean, they've been kind of handled and um, they've played the part in the household for a long time now. But you know, I think the online shopping experience, if you will. Being able to purchase it online, I think that's just opened the floodgates. I mean, we just seeing so many new owners popping up, and it's it's just the growth I think has been tremendous. Well, um, is there a correlation to the amount of species that are actually available now that are being captive bred? Do you think that plays a role in the amount of keepers and, and the ability to keep tortoises that are? Um, more designed for the areas outside, um, you know, like Florida's habitat and, and ecosystem, you know, certain tortoises do better here versus Arizona and, and so on and so forth. Do you think that plays a little bit of a role in the popularity of the turtles and tortoises? I think that is helping the hobby, definitely. See, when somebody jumps into the hobby, and now they have these resources like groups like TTPG that are able to help you 
take proper care of them. And once you taste success with your first total or tortoise, then that motivates you to go and get more. And that, of course, also, you know, helps in expanding the hobby and the sales as well. That definitely. But I think, you know, in, in my experience, based on what I see with the club members, the people who come in on Facebook and talk to me, there's just, I think, the availability, easy access, if you will. I think that's propelling the sales and the growth. Great. Great. I actually want to move forward and ask you, Drew, um, considering you're, you're with uh, ttpg.org and you guys do such amazing work on the preservation and, of turtles and tortoises, um, have you guys seen a rise? I mean, you, you guys started the group in 1996. Have you guys seen the rise in um, popularities? It's rise and fall. It seems to come and go just like every other facet of the hobby. Snakes are popular for a minute. Lizards, frogs, it, it seems to be up and down. Right, right. Um, are we currently seeing any kind of rise in, in, say, the past six months to a year? Do you no, think... no, it's been pretty stable. I mean, between James and myself, we're a pretty good chunk of the Arizona market. We probably put 2,000 hatchlings out every year. And for the past five to seven years, we've sold everything we've ever produced. So I don't know if it's so much a, a rise lately as a, just a, a steady plateau that we've been experiencing. Right. Well, the reason I'm asking, and I'm kind of digging into it a little deeper, is because I'm wondering uh, if there's a correlation between the rise of turtle and tortoises in captive um, conditions and, and people moving towards them, because of the the laws and the unknowns on the large constrictors that we always see on the snake side. Um, so I was wondering if people were moving more towards turtles and tortoises because of that, or if there was even anything e involved. Do you have any input in that? Maybe, you know... Oh, we've definitely had people offering ball pythons for tortoises, and we, we started seeing those ads about a year and a half ago. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, the unknowns and the the continuous battle on um, the large constrictors and, and pythons and snakes in general, which always hit the headlines. How many times do we see a turtle hit the headline that it killed somebody? Well, I, I haven't seen one. If anybody has seen one, please email it to me because I haven't seen one. But I was wondering if the... the herpetoculture world was kind of moving into the ways of turtles and tortoises because they're not really considered a, a dangerous animal. I think it's more, it's actually sadder than that. I think it's people that are moving towards them for a financial gain. They think that they're going to like ball pythons where and I think most of those people are going to be sadly disappointed. Turtles and tortoises, first of all, don't breed in two years. And it's just not the, it's not the same type of market. And I think a lot of these people are looking for a designer pet. So I think they're they're up for disappointment, coming from ball pythons. Right. Right. Okay. Russ, do you have anything to add to that? Um, do you have any ideas of um, the market of turtles and tortoises? You know, I would agree with Drew. I think uh, I think turtles have always been popular. We've always been sort of a, a little niche of the hobby, and I think a lot of people uh, is, is these markets kind of ebb and flow. I think 
I think people are looking at turtles because they see, like Drew said, we sell a lot of baby turtles and tortoises that we produce every year, and I think a lot of um, uh, money guys are sort of looking for new projects, uh, and, and they see a lot of turtles and tortoises, you know, selling at shows and selling online. It's just a different animal, basically. It, it's you know, you're looking at uh, animals that take five to 15 years to mature and breed. Um, uh, they're just a lot different. I mean, they're reptiles, but they're they're so different than what uh, if somebody hasn't kept turtles and tortoises a lot. Um, uh, the dynamics of the whole thing is very different. You know, raising them up, you don't raise breeders up in a couple of years. It takes, uh, uh, we, we have a friend that raised up some baby radiated tortoises, and the year that they turned 15 is when she laid her first clutch of eggs. So it's um, uh, a lot of turtles and tortoises you can't do, um, you know, because you want, uh, uh, want to make some money. You have to sort of be into turtles and tortoises uh, for the love of the animals and, and, uh, put in a lot of time and energy to uh, to get there. Right, and, and, and that is that's a large time period. I mean, ball pythons you can breed in two years. A lot of colubrids you can breed in eighteen months, two years, and, and turtles and tortoises do you know uh, take so much longer. John, you got next question? Yeah, uh, actually, I would uh, like to find out a little bit more because there's a lot of confusion in regards to. Uh, when we say baby turtles or tortoises, the first thing that always comes to my mind, and I know I've discussed it uh, with uh, Russ personally before at different shows and stuff like that because you always see it or it's always mentioned, the four-inch four-inch Kilonian rule, shall we say. Russ, for once and one time only, I'm going to ask you to repeat once again <laughs> for our audience. Okay. What is the forage turtle rule, and why did it come about? Okay, it, it's actually fairly straightforward. Uh, in the early 70s, um, like Michael was saying, uh, you could go into a Woolworths or a TGNY, and you could buy a baby red ear slider for 75 cents or 50 cents or whatever it was. Some of them had little flags painted on their shells. Uh, parents would take them home. Uh, these were the days before any filtration and water conditioners, and uh, basically you took a baby turtle home, put it in a little plastic bowl, and you fed it dried flies or dried mosquito larvae, and the water got dirty, and, and kids would get that nasty water on their fingers and put their fingers in their mouth and, and get um, salmonella, salmonosis. And um, so... Um, they, they passed a regulation where you could no longer sell baby turtles under four inches. And, and it's been in, in effect since 75, I guess, maybe 76, I can't remember. Um, so, but that was, in everybody's mind, that was sort of a commercial thing. That was Woolworth department stores and things like that selling to the general public. So turtle breeders have been going this whole time and, and basically selling baby turtles uh, to other hobbyists at reptile shows. Uh, also, some of the general public at reptile shows, um, and they've—I I think with the advent of all the new filtration and all the turtle products, I, I think it's pretty safe. And, and I think people get salmonella from bearded dragons and iguanas, and they get it from chicken and eggs. And we we know the whole uh, drill, you know. But uh, just these last couple of years, there's been—I guess—I guess there's so many more baby turtles being produced by hobbyists uh, that are reaching. Um, 
reptile shows, and I'm sure some of the breeders are kind of petitioning maybe uh, Petco and PetSmart and some of those places. So they have cracked down quite a bit. California uh, has started enforcing the baby turtle rule at reptile shows again. Um, the state of Illinois uh, last year did the same thing. They told the show promoters uh, no more sales of baby turtles at reptile shows. But the, the problem is that, that these agencies are also telling these show promoters and, and us as, as turtle breeders that tortoises are okay. They don't care about tortoises, and I don't think they care about box turtles. But legally, any reptile that has a shell is a turtle. The, the entire group of reptiles with shells are, are officially turtles. Uh, we, we call them tortoises and box turtles and terrapins and all of that stuff. So if they wanted to enforce it, they could enforce it for any reptile with a shell. So baby sulcatas, anything. But, but these last few years, it's been real nebulous, and they sort of um, just enforce it for, for aquatic turtles. And I think it has to do, again, with the water. Uh, our feeling in the TTPG is that it's a parenting issue. It, it's, it should not be a, a restriction on hobbyists uh, and people selling baby turtles. It, it's, it's more of a uh, take care of them properly and keep the water clean and everything's going to be fine. So that we, we, we've looked at lots of different angles um, at, for our, I mean, the TTPG, uh, our, uh, as, as Drew mentioned and, and James, uh, our main goal is, is breeding turtles. We, we want to teach people uh, about turtles and about conservation and, and about um, producing more. A lot of groups are interested in saving habitat in Madagascar and saving habitat in Cambodia. And, and our feeling is if, if you don't have the baby tortoises in 15 or 20 years, if you save that habitat, um, why bother? You, you, you have to keep, we have to keep breeding them and making them for, uh, for the future, both as pets uh, to get people interested in baby turtles and reptile and turtle pets, and also for conservation, the uh, super rare stuff that probably will never be in the pet trade, but will always, uh, you know, there'll be a need for it uh, for other turtle hobbyists, and hopefully, we hope someday in, in habitat once it's uh, uh, recovered. But anyway, so for the baby turtles, um, it, it's, it's kind of a mess right now. It, it's uh, some states uh, uh, don't care. They allow uh, the, the way the regulation is written. Uh, it allows for sales of some baby turtles uh, between hobbyists. Uh, if a turtle breeder wants to sell or trade turtles with, uh, you know, a, a turtle breeder in another part of the country, they're okay with it. it it's it's where you get into a public venue like at a reptile show or a pet store where anybody can walk in and buy a baby turtle. That, that's where uh, we're, we're facing problems with, with um, law enforcement and things like that. And, and again, it's, it's, it's not a cut and dry uh, issue. It's, it's, uh, some states allow it, some reptile show uh, uh, sponsors or, vent or, or um, uh, the people put on the reptile show, some of them allow it, some of them uh, don't. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's one part of TTPG right now. We have Richard Fife, one of our board members, who's been working on the baby turtle thing for about 25 years, um, and, and he's working on it even, even today, uh, trying to, to get things kind of, uh, uh, kind of more level-headed and, and intelligent when it, when it comes to, uh, I mean, mo most of these captive hatch babies that we're producing are healthy, no parasites, no stress. Uh, they're actually really good pets. It's just uh, we're, we're battling a, 
an, an issue and a regulation that came up, you know, 30, 30 years ago, 35, 40 years ago. So it's uh, that's part part of part of what we do. Awesome, very good. I pre and I appreciate the answer, uh, Russ. And as, as I said, I know you. <laughs> I know you're tired of repeating it. I'm sure, but still. No, no, no. I I, I love for more people to hear it. Uh, we need to get our message out more. Yeah, for sure. Now, James, uh, as far as you're concerned uh, with your work with TTPG, I have personally attended uh, some reptile shows, and this question would go to James Badman. Um, I've seen show, uh, Bennett reptile shows where they actually have a sign posted in regards to what Russ was saying about the regulation, and in large print it says, we can sell four-inch turtles if you're an educational facility. And I mean, this is an actual poster that I've seen at shows. And what's your take on that? <laughs> if you don't mind me putting you on the spot there, James. Um, no problem. Um, it, like Russ said, it, it really does vary from um, state to state. Um, uh, we've heard about California and Chicago uh, in, the, in the crackdowns. Um, currently, um, uh, Drew and I um, own the Phoenix Reptile Expo. That's in November. Um, they have not cracked down here. However, I, I own a pet store in Mesa, and it is very clear to me. Um, the, the, the health department regulates um, pet stores in um, our town like they do restaurants, and they have made it very, very clear. Do not sell. Do not bring in the, the baby water turtles. Um, to me, it, it's very odd because they can regulate us as pet stores, but then people freely sell them on Craigslist and on the corners with no regulation. Um, and 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 so here are the people they can regulate that that you know we that we could keep them clean and 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 sell them in a, a very healthy way. Uh, they forbid, and then the people they have no oversight uh, of. Um, they just you know they they can't control it. And, and they never will. Um, and, and like Russ mentioned uh, earlier, um, they, uh, or at least in Mesa, uh, they distinguish between turtles and tortoises. So um, at this time, they say no water turtles under four inches, but um, the, the tortoises uh, they, they have no issue with. Um, whether they, they see it as the, it's the water that causes the issue or dirty water, I, I, I don't know. Why the health department chooses what it chooses to do, um, but uh, uh, thankfully for me, because I'm a tortoise breeder, um, it, it is in that arena. Um, but at this time, with our show, um, they they do not regulate it. The um, the health department does not, um, uh, uh, nor nor any of the city ordinances. That's and, really great. Oh, sorry, John. Uh, I was say what we what we do find. A lot of times is other departments are picking up the cause for FDA. Uh, so, um, like in my case with the pet store, it's the health department, it's not the FDA. Um, in in where we see these other California and Chicago, it'll be the the game departments or the DMs or the, um, the the city ordinances or, or or whatever that they in place to try to enforce it for the FDA. Right. Now, see, this is the kind of um, discombobulation, for lack of a better term, 
that confuses me because I know I per when I was living in San Diego, I personally went to well, I don't know a dozen swap meets, and you know during my umpteen years there, every third or fourth booth, radiant sliders, size of a silver dollar, five bucks. Oh, and you get a pet, one of the little tiny, you know, pet keepers um, oh, that was featured in, uh, actually, Michael's article in Her Pals. Uh, he actually had a perfect photo of the little tiny clear plastic container with a little island on it that the turtle's supposed to go on. Um, I, I go home, I call, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and they basically tell me nothing we can do. And I actually asked the officer on the phone. I said, I'm not trying to be facetious, but your institution did write that legislation, correct? And he said, yes, sir. But your institution doesn't enforce that legislation? That doesn't make any sense to me. I never did get the answer. He hung up on me. So... <laughs> Um, actually, if I can pitch it over to Drew next, uh, Drew, what uh, what's been your experience with the whole federal and state regulation thing? Well, the one thing about the law is I don't believe U.S. Fish and Wildlife had anything to do with the implementation of that law. I think it's actually the CDC and the FDA that combined because they it's regulated as a health condition, not a wildlife issue. So I think that's it's that's the wrong agency to go to, I believe. Duly noted. I will make sure. Okay. Interesting. But uh, it's it's an unenforceable law when they're not going to bust the guys on the corner, and they're going to pick and choose when they enforce it. It's selective enforcement, and we saw it this year in California with uh, Pete Jansma of Waterland Tubs. Another vendor at a reptile show contacted the health department in California, and California Fish and Game is required to respond to all complaints. So California has their own regulation about under four-inch turtles, and Pete was cited for selling the turtles, and they actually took it to court, and it was a reduced sentence that came down to, Russell will have to correct me if I'm wrong, but basically a... a uh, a punishment of a misdemeanor that had absolutely nothing to do with the sale of turtles and that was the settlement. There was no penalty or fine due to the fact that he was selling turtles in a venue where there were multiple other vendors selling turtles but because he was complained about they went directly to his booth, he was cited and they left the building. I heard that story. Well, and, and they, he he had to hire an attorney and make three trips to Sacramento, you know, miss three or four or five days of work and hire an attorney to fight it. But it is, um, it, it's a mess. And, and you know, John, like you were saying, sorry, Drew, I, let me jump in real quick. I, um, you, you know, the, the, way, the way the FDA regulation is written is for uh, baby turtles can be sold for educational, scientific purposes, uh, for export. And it specifically says, but not to be sold as pets. And a lot of those signs that you see at reptile shows, the guys conveniently leave that uh, not to be sold as pets. They People are trying to cover themselves and say, you know, if you're going to buy a baby turtle, uh, make sure it's for an educational purpose. And it, it's been nebulous enough since the 70s is 
you know, I, I think a parent could say, you know, what is an educational purpose? I'm teaching my I'm teaching my son the proper way to care for a baby turtle uh, or to care for a reptile pet. It's educational, and I'm not sure. Um, you know, there have been lots of angles. Uh, uh, our board member Richard Fife, uh, he he tried to get him to agree the FDA and CDC a few years ago to limit the sale of baby turtles to uh, people over the age of 18. Uh, don't sell a baby turtle to a, a nine-year-old or a ten-year-old. You have to be an adult by a baby turtle, and it sounds kind of silly, like alcohol or cigarettes or something. But it's, uh, but but it is, I think, a pretty good uh, idea. And, and the problem is when when we talk to FDA uh, representatives and you talk to the CDC, if they raised, uh, if they got rid of this uh, ban on the sale of baby turtles, and the following year. 50 or 60 kids got salmonella and some of them died, which unfortunately probably would happen. No, no politician is going to touch that. No, we, we can't. It, it's hard to get a politician or, a, or high up in FDA or CDC to take on that and remove that ban on the sale of baby turtles when that's a potential outcome. I mean, it's for those guys, it would be political suicide or. Uh, um, it, it would be a bad deal. So, so I, I think that's the other side that we're always battling against. We all, we have some creative ideas uh, to allow turtle breeders and tortoise breeders to sell their healthy, parasite-free, stress-free offspring. It's just the other side uh, has some pretty good ammunition too. Yeah, for sure. And uh, another question for uh, James Badman: As far as captivity in uh, turtles and tortoises. Um, leaving the four-inch roll behind now. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, is there a market or a market difference between uh, keeping of turtles and tortoises outside the obvious, uh, you know, dry climate, wet climates, that kind of thing? Is there a general uh, lifespan difference between turtles and tortoises that we know of? That, and the reason I ask is because I see people buying, you know, the little tiny sulcata tortoise when they are, you know, 50 years old. And I'm thinking to myself, um, what are you going to be doing with this when it grows up? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it, it, a lot of it goes into their care. If you care for them properly, um, they're going to live a long time. I mean, they're, they're, they're meant to um, withstand a lot of pressure um, uh, from the wild predation on their eggs, whatever. Um, and and they're going to be you know we, we see it like we do with the the, the large parrots um, and and even even some of the tortoises now where um, we see them getting handed down or, or or you know again I own a store you know people come in and go you know this this was my grandma's turtle you know um, we really didn't want it um, uh, but she loved it to death you know we want to find it a good home and and I I think probably more they see it in Europe because. Um, they kept them in the family gardens. You know, when you look at um, some of these uh, Facebook sites, like um, Ed Probe has that, that tortoise keeper uh, site. You know, and, and I hear these people with their you know uh, 60, 80 year old Herman's tortoise or Greek tortoise, which I think is, is fabulous. You know, it's really really neat to see. Um, uh, they're being handed down, you know, through the family, and and and, and are being cherished as as a, a family pet. You know, and I. I, th I think that is actually pretty neat to see. You know. 
That's awesome. I was completely unaware that they were actually being passed on. I was very fearful to ask that question because, as I'm sure you're aware of, just like our whole entire panel here, it's like reptiles are a disposable pet. And I would even go so far, even more so, than the mammal pets that we currently see, you know, as far as dogs and cats. I would, I would definitely say that, you know, turtles, tortoise, any reptile is more of a disposable pet than most of the mammals, in my experience, anyway. And that was why I was fearful of asking, you know, about these older tortoises. It's like, oh, my gosh, where are they going? I, I won't lie to you and say, you know, a lot of these aren't being treated as, as throwaway pets. Yeah, of course we see that. Um, oh, sure. TTBG, especially, I mean, you know, Russ can tell you how many... Uh, well, Russ and Drew, they, they kind of oversee our, our the emails that come in, you know, how many of them need a home, and and that's what we're so fortunate with a, a U.S.-based uh, uh, um, membership is we can usually find a home even for the red-eared sliders, and, and they come in the droves, it seems like, through the seasons, you know, uh, uh, in, in spring and fall, you know, usually as they either have to get ready to deal with uh, hibernation or... Uh, just coming out of it before they have to set something up, you know, and 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 absolutely, I, I uh, we we do see it, and and I think it's unfortunate whenever you're dealing with animals in general, you know, we see it with with the birds and small mammals as well, and and I mean, look at the dogs and cat crisis that each of the, the cities deal with, you know. For sure. Now, uh, over to Drew real quick. Uh, Drew, as far as um, the abandonment issues that you and Russ come across. Uh, being part of the TTPG, how hard is it, do you find, to get the education out there prior to people buying these animals and then ending up in a situation where they're calling you, Russ, James, you know, anybody they can get a hold of to say, hey, I messed up, can you take this? Do you find it quite a bit? I wouldn't say it's overwhelming like a, like a dog or cat shelter. I still think right. there's more dogs and cats given up every year than there is tortoises. And the, the biggest thing for us is even if we can't get out there in front of that first pet owner, when we do our rehoming and our adoptions, we definitely make sure the home is suited for the animal and that it's a long-term home. We don't do much in the way of temporary homes. For the most part, we have a core group of members that provide the temporary homes until we can move these animals on to a permanent home with the one condition that if they don't stay in that permanent home, they come back to TTPG. Wow. That's huge. And now, uh, obviously you guys are able to keep these, you know, the ones that do end up coming back. Dare I ask how many uh, TTPG PG might have on hand at one time as far as adoptable uh, outgoing tortoises and turtles? We have a large enough membership that we really don't have a backlog. We may wind up with a backlog of red-eared sliders every once in a while, but for right. the most part we have a list for most species and as they come in we try to get them moved out as quickly as possible. So really there's not a storage issue. Wow. Okay. I think I think it's pretty amazing that you guys make the agreement that okay, here's the permanent home. Here you take care of the animal. If anything changes, you lose interest, you have to move, whatever it might be, that they have an outlet that they can automatically bring it back to. 
that they don't have to put it out on Craigslist or they don't have to drop it off in the in the wild somewhere. Um, it's kind of what I do with uh, with my older breeders and, and some of my project snakes that I don't need. Um, because I do educational stuff at the local school, I always have kids interested in their first snake. Um, I will donate the snake as long as the parent has a suitable um, housing setup. And my only thing is with the parents is if he decides to grow out of interest or doesn't take care of it anymore, it comes directly back to me. Um, and, and that's my only stipulation as well. And I think that gives parents the outlet where they don't have to um, dish it off or, or let it go or, or something like that. I'll, I'll always have a place for it. I think that's a good um, good responsible way to actually find these homes. Um, I kind of want to turn things uh, around and, and I want to get Daniel on here because I know Daniel, Daniel, you breed actual turtles and tortoises, right? Yeah, turn your mic on. Oh, are we having mic issues? Can you hear me now? We can Good hear luck. you now. Yes. Um. Yeah, we uh, we do uh, breeding and selling of uh, turtles and tortoises. Not quite as many as we do snakes, um, but uh, turtles are certainly uh, part of what we do. Now, you, you recently, well, not recently, it's been a few years since you went into a, a, a larger facility and, and built outdoor pens. Can you tell us what species of turtles and tortoises you're actually working with right now? Uh, we've got spotted turtles, redfoot tortoises, yellowfoot tortoises, sulcatas, and Herman's tortoises. Those are the main things we're working with right now. Great. Being in Florida, do you find uh, a lot of people contacting you with these larger tortoises just to have them rehomed? Um, uh, I wouldn't say that's overly common. I, I guess once every few years or so I see an adult male sulcata, and it, it just always seems to be a male. Um, nobody's ever just giving away an adult female, but um, we, we get those occasionally. Um, more often it's red-eared sliders and uh, one of the problems that that I see with our Florida law is they ban people keeping red-eared sliders as pets and uh, despite that a lot of people still have red ears or they had them before the law or most people don't even know that it's illegal to keep them so what happens is they get big and they want to get rid of them and uh, we contacted FWC our wildlife agency about this and they said, well, we would have to get a special permit and we would have to have another inspection of our facility uh, to even have red ears. And um, we're already inspected for other things. And I just didn't want, really want to deal with that. So unfortunately, I have to turn people away uh, who are looking for homes for their red eared sliders. And that's just a flaw in the law because they make it difficult for us to be to be able to provide that service. So I don't know what happens to a lot of the red-eared sliders here. We have a lot of them established in the wild, and I can only assume that uh, because of this law, uh, a lot more have been released, and that's the state's fault. Right. Absolutely. I have to agree with you. Now, one of the things I have to, to question you about the red-eared slider law, what about the albinos and the caramels and, and, and all the different morphs? Now, are they legal to keep in the state of Florida? Uh, yes, or at least the albinos. I believe the law uh, makes an exception for albinos. Um, 
and uh, they may just kind of interpret all of the other morphs as albinos. Um, but yeah, those are kind of higher dollar animals that you're not as likely to see sold at a reptile show for $8 or whatever. So it's not really a, much of a problem either as far as the kind of turtles people are going to buy and they're going to get too big and release. Right. Well, you know, the thing of it is, the amelanistic gene that we see, isn't it a recessive gene in red ear sliders? Yes. So if you have one amelanistic animal and you breed it to a normal, which you're not supposed to keep, but say you had one, you produce all heads. Now you have all normal-looking babies. Um, I, I, I think that's another flaw in the law there as well is, you know, um, we could go out in, in almost any retention pond and snag one. So it, it's I have to agree with you there. And I was just wondering about the amelanistic, whether they recognize the difference between the two. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a visible a visible thing. Hets are not an exception, so they would just interpret it that as a normal. And interestingly, we've even had them look at baby yellow-bellied sliders that happen to have a little bit of orange on their head, which does occur in even wild yellow-bellied populations, and they interpret that as a hybrid. Um, so they're looking at these turtles, and uh, even if they're pure yellow-bellied sliders, if they have a little bit of orange are saying, well, you can't sell those either. Wow. Now, let me just get your um, thoughts on the four-inch rule here in the state of Florida. Um, we covered Arizona. W what's your thoughts on it, and how is it actually enforced at reptile shows here? Well, we don't have a state four-inch law. That's a federal law, so um, we need to be careful not to get confused between the state laws and federal laws. Now, the federal four-inch law can be enforced in any state. So uh, I know of at least two cases of the uh, four-inch law being enforced by federal agents in Florida. And in both cases, I think it was from wholesalers uh, selling turtles, baby turtles, that ended up being sold at a pet store or flea market. And there were actual cases where there was uh, salmonella contracted from these turtles and of course at that point the wholesaler didn't really have anything to do with it but they tracked the source of the turtle and came back to the wholesaler and uh, made confiscations or imposed penalties on the wholesalers that sold the turtles so it's it, it, what some of our other guests said earlier about it being selectively enforced is totally true uh, I've never seen it enforced at a reptile show specifically um, our state wildlife agency, FWC, uh, does not enforce the uh, four-inch turtle rule. Uh, they don't really care anything about uh, baby turtles as long as they're not red-eared sliders from what I've seen at the reptile shows. But it is something that could be enforced, and that definition of what is a pet turtle is kind of nebulous. I mean, I, I think it would be hard for us to really uh, explain that turtles that hobbyists are breeding or trading amongst each other are not pets. I mean, how, how people do that with dogs and all kinds of other things, uh, it's kind of a nebulous distinction there between what's just a hobbyist and what's a, what's a pet keeper. But uh, as it is now, um, most people sell them um, with signs that say they're sold for educational uh, and scientific purposes only and I've never seen it go further than that uh, at a reptile show or a pet store, but I don't know that uh, it hasn't happened. 
Great, great. Um, actually, you know, sticking with the Florida theme here, um, I want to get your your opinion on gopher tortoises um, here in, in the state of Florida. Um, there's a law protecting them. Um, what's your what's your thoughts on that? And I know you're out in the field a lot. Um, and what's your thoughts on the actual, you know, population of the gopher tortoises? And do you have you seen them decreasing over the past decade, 15 years, or are they kind of staying steady um, from your point of point of view? I think gopher tortoise populations are relatively stable. Um, the, the biggest problem with tortoise populations in Florida has been in the panhandle. And uh, there's much more of a culture of eating tortoises up there and uh, also a habitat problem. And it's the same thing that's happened in uh, Georgia and Alabama. Um, the tortoises need kind of open uh, areas up there. It would be longleaf pine woods, sand hills, open flatwoods, things like that. Uh, in central Florida, we have a lot of just cow pastures in well-drained areas that are loaded with gopher tortoises. So uh, I don't think we have a problem with tortoises in the peninsula of Florida. It seems like there are tortoises just about everywhere there is good habitat. We might have a problem with the management of the habitat, with them being able to do controlled burns. Um, but as it is now, they've relocated a lot of tortoises to the panhandle uh, from development sites in central Florida and that's debatable from a genetic standpoint whether that's a good idea there are a lot of people who are actually against that but it has brought a lot of tortoises into areas that probably used to have them and then they went away either because of poor habitat management or they were just eaten out of existence by the locals but uh, I would say that we have more tortoise habitat uh, in Florida now than we did ten years ago uh, so no, I haven't seen a decrease in the tortoises, um, but it's that's not to say it's something that we still shouldn't keep an eye on. I mean, uh, tortoises are a keystone species; they're an indicator species of uh, of good habitat for especially sandhill and longleaf habitats, and it definitely is especially something that uh, we need to keep an eye on in the Panhandle and in Georgia and Alabama. Great. And, and one last question on that before I turn everything over to John for the next question. Um, sticking with gopher tortoises, do you think, is there ever going to be a possibility for captive um, gopher tortoises? Is that question for me? I'm sorry. Yep. yep. <laughs> still, still sticking with Florida there. Well, in, in Florida you can have a tortoise. It's actually not too difficult to get the permit for uh, having captive uh, a captive tortoise for educational purposes. Um, so if you can prove that you have a genuine educational objective, uh, it's not difficult to get a tortoise um, maybe from a development site or FWC has a lot of tortoises just turned in that uh, somebody finds it crossing the road, they bring it down and once they don't know where it came from they usually won't try to release it back into the wild. So there are ways that you can have a gopher tortoise, but you have to have a legitimate educational or scientific reason. As far as breeding and selling, I don't know that that's going to happen uh, anywhere in Florida as long as they're, they're protected, and they probably will remain, remain protected indefinitely. 
Um, but they are uh, they're uh, not uh, they're not federally protected. Um, so I te technically, people in other states could keep them if they had a legal source. So uh, I'm not sure if there are captive gopher tortoises floating around there in the hobby. I don't pay much attention to it because it's Florida. It's not really an issue for us. It's not something I could do. So, right. All right, John, you got some questions there? Oh man, I've got lots of questions. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, the, to start out with Daniel, because I did, you, you did mention it, and I did want to talk about it. In regards to turtle and tortoise eating, uh, people that consume turtles and tortoises, it happens in the United States. It happens in a lot of other countries. Now, with the understanding that we want to conserve not serve, but conserve turtles and tortoises, how do you go about um, establishing an open line of communication with native peoples in regards to make them aware that they're basically eating wildlife out of existence without damaging cultural relationships? Is that possible? Well, my opinion might be a little bit different than a lot of turtle people that you'll talk to on this. We had an interesting conversation on my turtle and tortoise uh, Facebook page uh, the other day, and uh, it was about a snapping turtle, and some people were saying, oh, well, that's horrible that people would ever eat snapping turtles. But in reality, snapping turtles have been harvested for years in many states, and it's part of the culture. I mean, people in almost every state where snapping turtles occur people eat them and snapping turtles are still common in many states where they occur so I'm really not against sustainable harvest um, I'm not kind of a touchy-feely guy that believes we should just keep our hands off anything um, if it's sustainable I don't really have a problem with it I've actually eaten turtle myself uh, soft-shell turtle and snapping turtle tastes kinda like chicken now on the other hand uh, there are certainly uh, turtles that have been collected almost out of existence. We're seeing this mostly in Southeast Asia, um, where they're just kind of eating every turtle they can they can get a hold of. And uh, there are certain species that are, there are only a handful of individuals left because of indiscriminate eating. So I think in that case, uh, some kind of creative solution uh, needs to be made. But it's all about working with the with the culture. There's a culture of eating uh, turtle eggs in in many parts of, of Central America and Mexico. So what they actually did to as a conservation program for the Ridley turtles, where there were these mass nesting events, the people were eating all the eggs. Well, the turtles got less and less in number, and uh, they started to do a program where they let the locals keep some of the eggs to eat, and they also hatch some of the eggs. And if you consider that about 98% or 99% even of all turtle eggs are actually eaten by predators, it really makes sense. If the locals want to eat some turtle eggs, well, why don't you let them and then also make them proud of their resource and want to protect it and leave some of them to hatch. And uh, by them protecting the eggs from predators, you're actually having more baby turtles hatch than would have naturally on their own. So it's that kind of creative solution, I think, that needs to be sought uh, in many of these cases. And it's going to be different from culture to culture. 
but any conservationist will tell you that you can't just go uh, to uh, to uh, to a culture anywhere in the world and tell them what to do. People are always going to be rebellious against that. So you've got to come up with creative solutions to work with them, make them proud of their resource, proud of their heritage. And if they can continue to eat the turtles in small numbers and at the same time come up with a program to protect them, I'm actually all for that. I'm not against using sustainable resources. And to my knowledge, that's kind of what happened with the, um, I think, the crocodilian species here in the United States. Uh, as a lot of the alligators uh, were being, you know, eaten or harvested, shall we say, and mm -hmm. then everybody figured out, hey, you know, we can start alligator farms and sell them for luggage and, you know, food and everything else and also maintain the population. So, no, sure. that, that totally makes sense to me. I, I totally agree. Um, yeah, in Florida, alligator harvest is definitely sustainable and... Uh, uh, I don't think we're ever going to reach a point where alligators are endangered because there's so many people farming them and they're being hunted uh, in a managed way in the wild and their eggs are being collected. But we're kind of overrun with alligators at this point. So yeah, exactly. Now uh, to throw this over to Michael, uh, Michael, if you could talk to us a little bit about um, you actually mentioned uh, Ron Whitaker uh, out in India. Uh, who most of, some or most of people should be familiar with uh, as far as his work with snakes. Uh, Michael, what's been your experience um, being from a different culture and coming to the States and uh, the interaction with wildlife? Do you see a marked difference between uh, the two cultures, or is it just... Well, I, you know, after I got into the hobby, I, I learned that turtles are not eaten just by the Asian folks. You know, you see it in South America, you know, around Easter they eat red foot tortoises or yellow foot tortoises. And like Daniel mentioned, snappers are a big deal here, right here in the U.S. And it's the same thing in India as well. There are certain populations, especially tribal folks, who hunt them, travancore tortoises, for example. You know, they burn the bushes, they, you know, they harvest them and they eat them. It, that's a meat source for them. And as long as it's sustainable, it's we don't have a pro problem. Where the problem creeps in is in a place like India, you have an explosion of human population. So we are already creeping in. We are, you know, taking out the forest. We are building homes. So they are moving further and further away. The nesting grounds are being taken over. So it, over a period of time, it manifests into a big problem. Rom, I mean, what he did with the snakes, he and his son now, they are partnering with TSA there in India. They're kind of doing the same with tortoises and turtles. So they are again, you know, enlisting the help of the tribal folks, the fishermen, and they're helping these people bring, you know, that draw their attention to any nests that might be happening. So if they see a river terrapin, you know, nesting, they go and bring in the eggs, they hide them out, and then they release them. So that's a positive sign. So, I mean, I, I personally think that's a great great deal, what Ron did with the people, how we embrace them. And actually, if you go visit the Madras Crocodile Bank that was started by Ron, you would mm -hmm. see the native people working there. So he's provided job opportunities for them. And he has shown them how to, you know, in case of snakes, extract the venom and use it for medical purposes. I'm not quite sure what they're doing with the tortoises and turtles, but I know with TSA, they've enlisted lot of help of the local native people and that's worked out great for them. Awesome. 
that's very interesting with, with uh, Rom and stuff like that, working with turtles and tortoises. Uh, now, is the um, as far as to your knowledge, anyway, uh, the TTBG. When you talk about um, you know international laws and stuff like that, are there any, uh, does the four inch rule apply internationally as well? As far as you know, if you were to say raise a four inch uh, radar or breed radar sliders, are you able to ship those out of the country to other countries, or is that just well, when it comes to exports, I don't, I don't think the four-inch rule comes into play. Um, I, I personally don't do any export, but any time I've contacted a wholesaler or somebody who does exports and talk about species, the CITES is what comes into the play. Size has never been an issue. I, actually, I've visited a couple of wholesalers, and I see the turtles that they ship out, aquatic turtles even, they're all hatchlings. And so my guess is the size is not a problem. Now, we did have a presenter at a, a couple of years ago at the TTPG conference. When it, once the animals reach the end zone you're talking about in particularly European nations, the way they're housed and how they're, you know, what kind of uh, terrarium, if you will, that they're sold into being housed, those kinds of rules do come into play. They, they, well, like, I guess I cannot say necessarily rules, more like guidelines. Um, like the Tortoise Trust has been over the last couple of years working to create guidelines, so to speak, as to what kind of terrariums and vivariums are acceptable and aren't acceptable. And my guess is once they have this all documented, they're going to be pushing this and probably enlisting the help of some animal rights groups as well to enforce the same. Very cool. And uh, just to change it up a little bit, I uh, want to jump over to Drew. Drew, as far as um, turtles and tortoises in the wild, um, our colleague over there, um, Daniel, had mentioned about you know when they are found in the wild, uh, you know people will just bring it to the next, you know whichever wildlife department they decide to bring it to. When we encounter wild turtles and tortoises, either as a hobbyist or you know just out hiking, what do we do with them? Do we just you know do we leave them alone or? Do we pick them up and take them to the, you know, local shelters? If they're What's not the, on the road, I say take a picture and move on. Gotcha. Fair enough. And uh, any, uh, how about you, James, as far as your, uh, or, yeah, James, sorry. <laughs> I didn't want Jimmy jumping in here, I, so I'm going to call uh, James Badman by James and call Jimmy Jimmy. That'll work easier. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, here in Arizona, once once they're in captivity, they're in captivity. So if if a person chooses to take any of our native uh, tortoises or turtles, which in, in the case of the desert tortoise, it would actually be illegal to bring it in um, to captivity. But once they're in, they're in. Um, they don't. They run adoption programs. They're actually overwhelmed with with um, tortoises right now, um, trying to figure out what they're going to do with them all. Um, uh, much like Nevada. Um, and um, but but that's the state rule. Um, and and again, we get called on. Uh, last year, we we did a lot of um, rehoming of our native box turtle. Um, there's a lot of people that that had them in their their um, in their natural range out down south in Arizona. And um, and um, again, it comes back to what do you do when someone dies or or something like that, and get called in and. 
and we, we actually had some, some large groups and, and it was a big question because some of these um, homes were in, within the range but they, the, 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 the rule is pretty clear once they're in they're in and, and uh, they got rounded up and sent to us and we were able to place all of them. So. Wow. Now, something else that uh, was brought up a while back, let's say um, you find a turtle or tortoise that is injured in the mm -hmm. wild, and the injury came from, you know, it could have been a predator, maybe, it, you know, a leg got, you know, run over by a car, and you happen upon it. Now, you, wanting to be a responsible person, you take that to a federal or, you know, state wildlife agency. Within your area, it's not going back out into into the wild, as far as I understand it. Correct. However, there there are other states and countries which will go ahead rehab it and then re-release it into the wild. My uh, my question for you would be: To my knowledge, when you take an animal from the wild for approximately, let's say, seventy-two hours that niche that was that turtle or tortoise or any animal's uh, range, if you will, could and potentially is already filled by another animal. So when you actually, yes, you rehab the animal and put it back out, which is great, is that animal actually going to survive? In your opinion. I, I know you're not, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot and say, you know, <laughs> I'm holding you to this. Yeah, there's a lot of opinions on this, and okay. and I have seen um, turtles and tortoises brought into captivity, uh, telemeter telemeters applied, and re-released within 24, 48 hours with no no ill effects to the animal. Oh, okay. um, there's others that would argue, just as you've said, when once they're pulled, the niches gets filled, backfilled, and and go back um, uh, again, uh, and, and again in, in those studies where where um, these animals are, are tagged or monitored and brought into captivity. There's very strict protocols. They're not um, uh, exposed to exotic tortoises or even other tortoises. A lot of protections are in place for the animals so they don't get exposed to viruses. Um, in in Arizona, they're really worried about um, uh, uh, you know basically any of the runny nose syndromes you want to call it, um, and uh, horses here getting exposed to them. And, and um, um, it, you know, it's serious. You know, they don't, they want to keep the, the tourist population healthy. Um, but um, going back to your question, there are a lot of papers in, in place that say, you know, animals can't be, uh, or, or tortoises specifically can't be uh, released back in the wild. They wander, and they wander aimlessly, and they, they they just find them dead. However, they are they are showing some studies from from back east with box turtles where they do like the hacking pens um, that they 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 are able to establish a little niche or territory and then work their way out um, and and having some successes to it. And there's been talk in Nevada about um, doing something similar with the desert horses. And and you know uh, it, it would be nice if they found a way to reintroduce a lot of these animals and and, and put them back and. You know they they need to work it out because if, if that's the plan in in Burma with the Burmese stars and all these um, Asian countries or Madagascar, um, you know apparently just raising them and dropping them in the wild isn't going to work. So um, we we need to figure something out. 
Gotcha. Fair enough. Now, um, as far as your work uh, with the uh, spider tortoise and uh, the flat-tailed tortoises, what do we got going on? Uh, evidently, this just came across the wires not too long ago about some new federal regulations are attempting to be put into place. If you can give our audience a little bit of an overview of what happened and where this came from all of a sudden. Yeah, um, two, two groups uh, petitioned U.S. Fish and Wildlife to, um, I think it was last fall, um, like last September, uh, they actually put the petition uh, to U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and it was listed in the Federal Register about two weeks ago, um, uh, petitioning to um, uh, uh, list the spider tortoise and flat-tailed tortoise uh, under the Endangered Species Act, which would um, uh, prohibit, prohibit interstate commerce in them, uh, same as the radiated, you know, uh, as a, um, a means to um, stop trafficking in them. And um, uh, it, again, we're, we're, I'm giving you my opinion, which is it's a very bad idea. Um, it's not going to do anything for them in the wild. Um, uh, you know, we're not, when you hear those big complications of you know, 500 radiated tortoises and piles of, of spider tortoises. It's not in the U.S. It's in you hear the conversation at the airport in Madagascar of these suitcases full of tortoises, and they weren't heading to the U.S. And, and um, so I, I, don't, I don't believe it's going to do anything for the population. I think it's going to actually hurt um, the people like myself as we, we try to bring the, the few remaining animals that are out there uh, together for breeding. And, and we have an open comment period right now. Everyone who uh, has an opinion should share it um, uh, during this comment period and let U.S. Fish and Wildlife know what, what we're thinking. For sure. So basically um, what we're going to do is uh, in the show notes there will be a link uh, where people can comment. And you said this is an open comment period where uh, basically everybody gets to be heard on what their thoughts are as far as the uh, legislation is concerned? Yes, I believe we have like a week or, or left. It's a 30-day, uh, it's in the Federal Register. Um, uh, U.S. ARC has, has done a lot of stuff to, to put it out there, so, so is your... Um, like when I was talking to James last night, you know, it's, it's a little, little hidden in there under some of the other stuff going on, and, and so um, we really appreciated um, everyone bringing that to light, you know, so that that um, people can get out there and comment, because if you don't, it'll be like some of these other species that just get, it just gets pushed forward if, if no one cares, you know. Exactly, exactly, and that's, that's the thing, you know, is no one cares. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> well, I don't think, I don't think it's nobody cares. I think what happens is it gets hidden. And, and, and people don't see it until it's too late. Um, there's a lot of people out there that care. There's a lot of people that don't want to see it um, put on ESA. It's not the fact that they don't care. It's if I didn't talk to James last night and he didn't bring it to my attention, it was buried in all of Uzark's information. If you didn't read through everything that they did, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have known. Um, there was no post that I saw throughout. Um, Facebook or social media directed specifically for the spider tortoise or the flat-tailed tortoise. Um, it was all buried in the Python uh, 
reopening or it was buried in something else. So um, I, I think us as herpetoculture, we can get together and really promote some of this stuff, but it takes that one person to open it up, to bring it out, to, to share it. Um, so James, I actually want to touch on this because I actually went through the links that I found on Uzark. Um, is there a way to actually post the comments um, digitally in, in, in there? And if so, could you send me the link where we could do that? Because I couldn't find it on Uzark's website or in any information that I had. Maybe it was overlooked by me, but if there is a link, um, can somebody send it to me so I can actually put it in with everything on this whole promotion to get everybody commenting on it? It, yeah, absolutely, um, because there um, there is a link to the commenting um, section, and I, I will get that to you uh, for sure. Um, uh, but I, I do want to touch on one one thing. Um, uh, I I don't I, I do believe people care, but um, a lot of people do have the attitude though that someone else is going to fight the fight for me. Someone else is going to to comment. Someone else will 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 make it so this won't happen. And I don't think people realize how important it is that we all comment. We have, we, we have to, just like, I mean, you, you know it as well with the snake bands and stuff. And, and again, we talked about it last night with the bird groups. The bird groups are where the snake groups were a couple years ago. They're not united, and they're watching species, you know, literally just get listed on the ESA list. You know, it, you know we all do need to step forward. And, and so... I, I, I don't want it to make it seem like people don't care, but we do all need to, to comment, though, and, and, and stick up for it. You know? Absolutely, and, and that, goes for, that goes for snake guys, turtle guys, frog guys, whoever. It, it, we're all in it together, so if we don't help the tortoises, well, you know what? You know, it, it's going to be a frog next, or it's going to be a dog or a cat, or, or whatever. Um, and and we were talking about the birds. I mean, the bird people are now seeing what we went through. And if they don't join together, and if we don't help them either, they're going to see it, and, and it's just going to continue a, a big downhill spiral. Um, I actually want to. I actually want to touch on, you know, really, what are the implications? I mean, say we don't get enough comments, and this thing actually falls through. What really happens to these turtles in the wild? And here in America, I mean, I read on Uzark that we have breeders that have diverse colonies that are actually breeding these tortoises. Um, what's going to happen with these breeders? And James, I know you're one of them. Um, could you tell me what's really going to happen to you if this happens to go through? Right, and 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 it's an interesting comment because um, several several people, several zoo guys have said to me. You know, what's it matter? You already have a CBW. You can add um, these onto it, you know, and and um, it won't be an issue. You'll still be able to, to, to trade them. You, you still will be, able, will, will be able to move them around. But it's not about necessarily me. It's, you know, um, one, one of the subspecies of the um, spider tortoises, oblonga, there aren't enough of them there we, we, to, to have a... a strong captive population in the U.S. and fortunately at one time there was you know Will Aarons was breeding them um, pretty successfully um, they were being sold in Daytona um, and and there's still some out there but it, it's those little breeders that 
that don't want to mess with the, the getting the permit. Um, and and we all know, you know, people fear the permit process. They fear the application, and so they don't go out and 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 fill it out. And those are the ones that we're not going to be able to bring into it as well. Again, going back to Oblonga, we're trying to bring some in from Europe, and and I'm convinced that that this listing will, will shut down the, those possibilities. Whether that's true or not, you know, some people say, you know, you're you're, you're overthinking it. That they'll still, you know, you know. You might still be able to work it out, but the more restrictive we come, we, we shut it down, and and we'll just simply watch a blonga get eaten into extinction um, uh, in, in Madagascar, and and the the, the few handfuls in the U.S. dying out, um, uh, you know, in, in private collections um, because we couldn't get them together. I mean, we Drew and I actually own a lone male. Um, I mean, they're they're and we know they're out there. It's just finding them. Um, where, um, like the Braguai and the Arachnoides, the other spider tortoises, yeah, we have a fair number of them, but to keep that genetic diversity, we need to be able to trade them, we need to be able to move them around, and the more restrictive that is, um, again, you know, what is that doing for the wild population? Why do we need this unnecessary regulation? And, and then going back to the CBWs, uh, you know, fish and wildlife is, is just... You know, right now they're 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 so behind in processing their permits. Um, myself and others are waiting for our renewals. You know, what used to take only months to um, uh, to to get um, a renewal. You know, you know my 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 renewal application. You know, it. Um, and I'm a person who's had a permit for 12 years. You know, so um, you know. You're, you're adding just more and more and more to this process that they are already behind, they're already under the gun. And and who's funding this? You know, are, are Friends for Animals and Wildlife Guardians going to fund uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife for processing all these new permit applications? I mean, uh, or is it just going to continue to be as tax dollars, our tax dollars, you know, uh, I, I, for unnecessary regulations and unnecessary paperwork? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, it's such a bad process that does nothing for the, the animals in Madagascar. Right. Let me let me turn this over to Drew. I want to get Drew into this conversation as well, and I'm going to get all the panelists into this conversation because I think you guys all have something to bring to the table. But Drew, let me get your absolute concerns with this. And is there any other ways that um, others? Other people can help out. I mean, can it can it happen? You know, can it be people from Europe actually commenting back here to the states and, and saying, "Hey, you know, if you do this, this is actually going to hurt us too." Well, the the main point to get here, I think, is adding an animal to the ESA in the United States that is not a U.S. native species is absolutely pointless for con conservation in their native range. Because we put them on the ESA list in the United States, it's not going to protect the tortoises that are being smuggled out of Madagascar. Those tortoises aren't being smuggled to the U.S. They're being smuggled to Thailand and other areas of Southeast Asia that couldn't care less what we put on the ESA list in the States. They're already not following the wildlife laws in their country and Madagascar. So the ESA listing the only thing it will accomplish is to limit genetic diversity and gene flow in the captive populations in the U.S. and possibly Europe if we can't exchange animals. 
And I think captivity is the only hope for these animals. Right. And at the rate they're being smuggled out of Madagascar, another 10 years there will be no Pixis tortoises in Madagascar. Now the other uh, the other thing that kind of tweaked my interest on it too is if we don't have these tortoises in captive collections, no Americans really going to find out exactly how different these tortoises are or what these tortoises really are. So there's going to be no interest for them to go help save or conserve their natural habitat or go help Madagascar with with their wildlife laws. Um, if we have the interest in the private money here in the U.S. or even uh, school money and stuff, and we get to see these animals in real life, we form a bond to it. I mean, it, look at it, look at the back. I mean, I'm a tricolor snake guy, but I love all reptiles. But my heart's with tricolors. Why? Because it was probably the first one that really piqued my interest. And if we don't have these tortoises available to pique interest, people aren't going to be able to want to help preserve it because they're not going to know anything about it. Is that kind of you know playing into the situation here too? Um, that that we could help out if we kept the captive populations to pique the interest to, to raise you know awareness in the other country. I think it's going to go deeper than that because without the captive populations, I don't believe there are going to be Pixis tortoises. I think it's it's gotten to be such a dire situation that if we're not producing these animals in captivity, they will cease to exist for future generations. And the only hope these animals have is an assurance colony, and that's one of the main functions TTPG was put together for, is to link keepers up so we can build these assurance colonies outside these animals' native range because of habitat loss, because of human encroachment, because of poaching. That's, that's one of the reasons we feel TTPG is so important and so beneficial is we're kind of the glue that puts all these guys together so that they can get this one lone male oblonga that we have with a female so that those animals can be producing offspring to perpetuate the genes of that species. And, you know, just to jump in here, um, Drew, as far as genetic diversity is concerned, I know how important it is, but how important is it with turtles and tortoises as far as genetic diversity is concerned? Do you start, if you, I guess the best way to put it, how long before we start seeing when we have male A and female B, how many offspring can we possibly produce from just two animals without going into, you know, mal... Um, uh, genetic defects. We don't Do we see have many genetic defects. Or... many genetic defects with tortoises, and we're we're multiple generations. And I know with sulcata tortoises, we're probably in the U.S. alone, we're probably 25 generations deep in sulcata tortoises. Mm -hmm. So, and the the malformations and and that sort of thing that we see most of the time are from incubation error, not from genetic, you know, limited genetics. So oh. I, I don't think that it's become an issue yet with genetics, but we definitely breed for diversity. We try to keep all of our, our founder animals and, and breed a specific line off of those animals so that we can outcross them with other keepers who have other founder animals. 
we try to get the F1s together and keep them unrelated. Gotcha. That makes sense. And uh, Russ, as far as uh, your take on the whole uh, conservation efforts with some of the um, the tortoises and turtle uh, tortoises rather mentioned tonight, how do what what is your uh, best estimation as far as the best way to conserve the spider and the flat tails, other than keeping them off the uh, ESA or Endangered Species Act? What can we do? Do we just generate more interest, or how can we help TTPG get the word out there and, you know, well, something happen? You know, like, like Drew and James said, I, there, there's not an inflow of spider tortoises and flat-tailed tortoises anymore. You know, those days were 15 years ago when they were being exported from Madagascar. Uh, so th there's no real potential now. To, to get new uh, animals, other uh, than maybe some breeders in Europe, some of their captive hatched offspring and things like that. So um, we, um, so really what you've got is a captive population that just has to increase. I mean, we, as tortoise breeders, we have to just keep making more, and we have to do it the best way we can, and that's from... Uh, uh, shifting animals around. There are enough founder animals. We, we call animals that were brought in from the wild founder animals. There are enough of those around where we, we have a, um, some really good genetics. We have the potential uh, to, to not see bottlenecks probably, um, but we have to be very careful. We have to trade babies uh, from D Drew and James in Arizona uh, with a breeder in Florida, and we have to take animals from Florida and trade them with a breeder in Massachusetts, and we have to be very careful. We, we uh, TTPG, we keep um, all of that information. Uh, zoos have uh, stud books where they track animals either with uh, microchips or, or uh, other ways, and, and we do the same thing. We're, we're a bunch of private hobbyists that, that keep and breed turtles and tortoises, um, but, but we're very serious about what we do, and we, uh, we, genetics is a huge part of what we do. Um, and, and what this uh, endangered listing would do for spiders and flat tails is it, would, it, it's, it basically prevents you uh, from, sh from moving uh, these animals across state lines. Now, you can do it if it's a legitimate breeding loan or if the animals are a gift uh, uh, to another person. But like James said, they have a, a CBW permit uh, that's that's pretty intensive to get, uh, and it's uh, you have to renew it every year. Uh, the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife has has been very very slow about renewing those permits, um, and it's just more red tape. And what has happened with with other endangered species like Galapagos tortoises and radiated tortoises, uh, the paperwork and the permit system. And the other breeders that decide not to keep those endangered species anymore, it, it really limits. Um, anytime an animal is put on the endangered list, uh, unfortunately, it, its population captivity shrinks uh, because there are a number of breeders that just won't breed that species anymore because of all the red tape and the permit system that they don't want to do that. They, they're doing it, let's uh, be honest, they're doing it uh, commercially. And if that animal is not commercial anymore, if they can't ship the animals and sell them uh, uh, across the United States, then they, they choose another species. They uh, get rid of the radiated tortoise and start raising star tortoises or redfoot tortoises because they're easy uh, and, and there are no uh, permits or red tape involved. So it, it's uh, like these guys said, it's uh, 
uh, I think the uh, the snake the big snake guys are of course pretty frantic right now and um, and when they start talking about turtles and tortoises I think uh, uh, the lizard guys sort of uh, uh, duck their heads and say wow it's not me and, and we need to you know uh, Drew and James and I we, we uh, we're involved in fundraisers uh, for fighting the big snake regulations and and have been for five or six or seven years through auctions and donations and that's what we're hoping we're hoping that the the snake guys and lizard guys will help us because uh, uh, we're 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 under attack uh, the reptile hobby uh, like never before uh, we've got a lot of people uh, uh, trying to take snakes away and take venomous away and to take bearded dragons away and to take baby turtles and it's um, it's something we all need to um, be really careful about Understand. It looks like we uh, lost did we, Daniel. Did we, did we just Daniel? lose Daniel? <laughs> let's see if we can get him back on because I just wanted to hit him with a question. But let's I go know. ahead. <laughs> let's go ahead and uh, I'm gonna ask you, hit Michael, Michael to, or Michael. <laughs> <clears throat> Michael. So you know, keeping on the same track of ESA and, and um, that whole arena of stuff. Um, I know you're part of the San Francisco Turtle and Tortoise Society, is that correct? Sacramento Turtle and Tortoise Club. Oh, Sacramento, that's right. So, are you guys putting together anything to help this and, and help comment as a society? And if so, do you know of any other societies throughout uh, herpetoculture, whether it be on Facebook, um, uh, anything else? Do you know of anybody else trying to join together that can reach out to the snake breeders, to the lizard breeders, to uh, the other pet keepers to really join forces? Well, what I I and a few other concerned, you know, hobbyists are doing is basically spreading the word. Now, you know, one of the things, like I think uh, James was saying, is a lot of the hobbyists, you know, who are not necessarily looking at it, you know, looking at the bigger picture from a conservation standpoint, they basically wait for others to come and, oh, somebody else is going to take care of it. You know, this is very important for somebody else. They're going to deal with it. Every single comment is, you know, important. I mean, um, like like today, it's spider tortoises. I mean, but prior to spider tortoises, the, the Indian spotted pond turtles were already there. And like Russ mentioned, some people who were breeding them, you know, they kept hatching, they were very successful, but they couldn't move the hatchling, so they stopped breeding, you know, and there isn't many new bloodlines being moved around. And so it, I, I think just about anybody and everybody who has even the slightest interest in turtles and tortoises need to jump in and contribute with a comment, but it, 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 is, it is like pulling a tooth out, honestly speaking. Um, we we saw that happen when we were fighting the snapper first, so to speak. You know, people were saying that's a shame, but they didn't want to take that two minute to make a comment. Which uh, you know, but we continue to keep doing that. We continue to keep spreading the word, and we try to keep you know recruiting if we can. Right, and and, and the old saying, we don't know what we had till it's gone. It kind of holds true, because once you take it away, it's so hard to get it back. Um, so, what you know, some of my ideas in, in doing this, um, I always seem to run across the various states, um, federals. You know, just like James and I talked. You know, if it wasn't, if it wasn't to come across my Facebook screen, or if it wasn't to come across um, 
my eyeball, I, I really wouldn't have known about it. Um, following Uzark is, is only one entity to really follow, and you really have to go back and forth and, and find them. I'm trying to think of a way, and, and maybe we can get everybody in her pedicultural together to think of a way that you know we can forcefully promote things like this throughout social media. I mean, we know. I mean, look at Ben Siegel. He's got what a hundred thousand likes on his page. Um, it, you know, so there's many, many a people out there, but we all have to join together and, and not turn that blind eye and help out our feather, uh, her pediculture. Uh, person. Um, Daniel, I want to get with you on this because you had some pretty strong comments in, in, the, in the chat here and uh, I actually want to get your opinion on this whole endangered uh, um, ESA and, and how you look at the, the process overall, not specifically to the spider tortoise, but, but the whole process overall. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think the concept of the U.S. government making a list of protected species that are exotic that don't even occur here in the United States is kind of ridiculous. I mean, they brought up how it's going to make it more difficult to move these animals from state to state. Is our goal to have more of these animals or less of these animals? If it's to have more of these animals, then allowing people to breed them and freely move them across state lines is the answer. And, uh, I mean, a good example of this would be what's already happening with radiated tortoises. Um, you, uh, you probably have seen pictures pop up uh, on the Internet, on your Facebook page, maybe, of, of, of confiscations of radiated tortoises. You know, maybe a hundred baby radiated tortoises confiscated at an airport somewhere. Well, I would venture to say that those tortoises probably would have been better off had they reached their destination. If they, even if they were being smuggled, they would have increased the captive breeding stock. Uh, what's happening now is the tortoises, they might get frozen as evidence for some court case. Uh, they might get placed somewhere where they're not going to be taken care of, where they're not going to be bred. Right now there's a facility in Madagascar that is overwhelmed with radiated tortoises that have been confiscated, confiscated, and they never go anywhere, and they can't even take care of them all. And uh, what the situation was about 10 years ago in Madagascar is that radiated tortoises were actually really common in the wild. They were everywhere, uh, but because they were uh, such a popular species and they're beautiful and there is a demand for them worldwide, uh, the powers that be decided that this is something that we should be careful of because tortoises are are sensitive and and we need to restrict the uh, the movements of these across country lines and state lines. So uh, radiated tortoises are listed on CITES, which is the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species, and also they're listed by our own government. And uh, what's happened now in Madagascar is actually. A, uh, a new tribe has kind of moved in uh, from mainland Africa and they brought a culture of eating tortoises from the mainland. Uh, before that you had uh, actually the natives considered radiated tortoises sacred and that's why there were so many radiated tortoises in Madagascar. Well now that this new tribe has moved in they're just decimating the tortoises and apparently from what I've heard it's actually now difficult to find a radiated tortoise in the wild. So uh, what's happened 
is that they're being decimated in the wild, and yet a breeder in Florida can't do a breeding loan with somebody in Georgia, uh, maybe 50 miles away across the state line to get a male and a female radiated tortoise together, and they're being eaten out of existence in the wild, and they've just made it more difficult for us to breed them in captivity. It's a beautiful species. It's one that would be popular in captivity. It actually does really well in captivity, and they're just making it difficult for us to produce more radiated tortoises. And now they want to do the same thing with other species from Madagascar. And it's just counterproductive. It makes no sense. Great. Thanks for your insight. Um, guys, I, I, I totally appreciate you guys taking two hours out of your day to come on the show. Um, we're kind of going to close it out. We're at our two-hour mark. We'll be free to open this, uh, up this discussion later on. Um, James, Drew, Ru uh, Russ, Michael, Daniel, hey, I'm all for it. If there's anything I can do to help, you know, keep this um, going and the information, or if there's something else that pops up, feel free to email, um, PM, post on my Facebook page, uh, myself and John, or even Reptile Living Room. Um, <laughs> Please do. Uh, it's something that John and I feel that um, after talking for months that we feel that we have to bring her pediculture together. It's not about the beautiful animals. It's not about, you know, what's my next morph and how much money am I going to get. It's about saving this hobby and saving this hobby for futures because if, they, they, if all these animals start to die, all we're going to have is ball pythons and corn snakes. Um, it, that's the only thing that's going to be left. But um, we really appreciate you guys coming on. Um, I'm going to go through you guys one last time if you have any closing words. Russ, do you have any closing words for our audience and, and the rest of our guests? Oh, did we lose yeah. Russ? Oh, yeah. No, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Uh, yeah, no, I just thank you guys for doing that. I know, I know that, you know, uh, uh, you guys are considered snake guys, sort of, and it just it makes us feel good when when people want to you know we, we have I mean literally we have frog guys and and big snake keepers and everybody else that kind of hear these things and they realize that it's 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 not about us protecting our interests because we love turtles and tortoises it's um, it's our hobby itself our industry is under attack by um, by people that I, I don't know if they think they're doing well or they think they're protecting the public or what they think, but um, uh, we, we need to band together more than we have uh, uh, for as long as I've been doing this for sure and uh, come together and, and uh, save it for our kids and grandkids. Great. Russ, thanks again. Michael. You're welcome. Thank you. Michael, any closing words? Uh, no, I, I, I think I kind of echo, um, you know, Russ's sentiment that um, I do want to quickly, you know, stick in a personal agenda from a hobbyist and, uh, you know, wildlife rehabilitator st standpoint, if you don't mind. Um, you know, if you get tired of your pet turtle or tortoise, reach out to groups like, you know, TTPG, Turtle and Tortoise Preservation Group. Um, you know, I have a problem at hand, actually, we in California right now. Some of the ponds are drying up due to the drought, and sliders are dying. Most of these are released pets. You know, people look at a large pond that's lush. It's got what you know, fish and whatnot. They think the pet turtle Timmy is going to be really happy there, and they release them. 
only that next summer a group of biology students will come in and pull out these sliders from the phone in the name of doing a study on the native populations and these sliders just end up in the freezer. So please don't do that for your pet's sake. Um, reach out to groups like Turtle and Tortoise Preservation Group or any other local club even, you know, and um, do your do your pet and uh, what native wildlife for favor. Thanks for having me on the show, James. Thanks very much, Michael. And uh, just want to jump in here real quick, Jimmy, if I may. I know we're running uh, yep. short on time, so I'll make this really quick. As of tonight, after the show, Michael's article will be uh, the next free article on her house after the show because it actually talks and speaks directly to TTPG, their mission, their efforts, as well as what Michael just mentioned about, please, for the love of everything sacred, stop releasing your turtles into the wild, or any other animal for that matter, but specifically turtles and tortoises. Okay, Jimmy, back to you. Thank you. All right. Hey, thanks, John. And everybody grab that, herpousemag.com. John said he'll have it up tonight, and I'm going to hold you to it. Um, yes, sir. James Badman, um, any closing words, any closing comments, or anything you'd like to tell the audience? Uh, yeah, absolutely. One, uh, to follow up off of what uh, Daniel said, because I think he said it very well, is, you know, what, what model is going to be here for the pixels and which way are we going to go? Are we going to do it like the, the radiateds where we can't get animals together, we're going to restrict the trade, or are we going to do it like the sulcatas where um, we, we leave open trade and, and allow open breeding and, and look where the sulcatas are today? Um, you know, when I, when I talk to some of the old timers, and they tell me about the 70s when it was easier to get nifra um, uh, than sulcata. You know, they were the prized animal. Um, you know, and look where sulcatas are today. Um, you can definitely um, uh, tell which models work in, in actually producing animals. But uh, anyways, um, I, I, I do wanted to um, uh, thank you both for having us on. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and, and then I know I'll see Michael and, and others um, at the TTPG conference in, in November. Um, and uh, look forward to, to seeing everyone there, too. So thanks again for having us on. Thanks again for coming on, James. And hey, when that conference comes up, um, make sure you send us uh, the dates and maybe a, a preview so we can actually get it out there and maybe get some more people out there for you. Um, Drew, any, any closing words? Any comments for our audience? Panel members? I just want to thank you for having us and uh, tell everybody to go out to the TTPG Facebook also. We have quite a network. We're just shy of 4,000 members on our Facebook. Uh, that's where we post most of our information. It's where we stay in contact with most of our members. Um, and one of the other benefits to being a paid member is our magazine, The Battiger. The Battiger comes out once a year, full color beautiful, beautiful publication that Russ puts together every year. Uh, but the only way to get a Badiger is to join TTPG. We have a very, very small membership fee. It's $30 a year. For all the benefits and the money we use for good causes, it's, it's well worth it. Again, though, thanks for having us. Thank you, Drew. And uh, that, uh, for our audience, $30 a year. I have the TTPG Facebook page actually linked on the event page. I'll actually post it on Reptile Living Room. Anybody following me, friends with me on Facebook, you're going to get hammered with it probably for the next 
10 years. So, um, Drew, thanks again. And Daniel, um, last one, any closing statements? Yeah, so i just like to say as far as a, uh, a general perspective for the Herb Hobby, we really need to uh, stand up for each other's freedoms. Um, I know we've had a recent uh, focus on the large constrictors. Uh, there was a uh, proposed uh, legislation in Illinois uh, that would make it legal to keep large constrictors, and so the Herb Hobby as a whole applauded that. But unfortunately, uh, it made it more difficult. It actually uh, effectively banned turtle farming, and it banned uh, out-of-staters coming into Illinois and collecting any snakes, even common species. So I regarded that as a overall negative legislation for the uh, herp hobby. Now, uh, USARC endorsed this law. And uh, it was better for the large constrictor people, but I think we all have to stand up for each other. And uh, if it affects locality colubrid people, which I'm into also, or turtle people, or constrictor people, uh, it's something that we should all be concerned with because they'll be coming after your animals next. Absolutely. And I know exactly what Illinois law you're talking about. Um, there was some other provisions in there, and I have to agree with the the turtle guys did get the the slap on, uh, across the face on that one after rereading it. And uh, um, John, you got any closing statements? <laughs> I really want to echo uh, the thank you to the TTPG, um, as just our whole panel was just incredible. I learned so much tonight about turtles and tortoises. Um, really interested in pursuing, uh, speaking with some of you gentlemen later on uh, after the show, just once again, thanks so much. And definitely what everybody has echoed here, I think herpeticulture has quickly become an industry versus a community. And that's something that we really need to work on. You know, it's not about the sales guys. It's really not. Um, it's about the conservation and the enjoyment of the species that we currently have in captivity, not just in the wild as well, but both, you know, in captivity and in the wild. Um, do check out TTPG, all of our sponsors, as listed in the show notes, uh, Herp House Mag, uh, NERGC, everybody. <laughs> Sunshine Serpents. Yeah, that one. Hey, did I get it right? I didn't tongue-tied that one. Wait a minute, doesn't he have a shirt on there? Show off that shirt there, Daniel. There Keith Helson designed this logo for <laughs> it. We really like it. Awesome. All right. All right. All right, guys. Hey, I'm going to do a quick rundown. Next week, we have another great show. Um, it's July 3rd. We're actually going to do uh, bring on Deloitte who is actually doing a frilled warrior project. So stay tuned because it helps out our soldiers, and, and, and it's a great um, auction. He'll, he'll be on next week, and if any servicemen or women would like to come onto the show, it's open invite. Open invite next week. Contact me via uh, PM, Facebook, email, reptilelivingroom.com, wherever. Um, anybody that wants to listen to just the audio, We'll have the audio up on iTunes um, probably tomorrow, 
Audio yep. will be up on reptilelivingroom.com tomorrow. You can always catch the recorded version of the show on YouTube here in about 10 minutes at the same link. And you can also catch the video on reptilelivingroom.com. Um, and I think that's it. And we'll see you guys next week, same time, 9 o'clock Eastern. And we'll be covering Frilled Warrior Project. Thanks again, guys.